Welcome to Fragmented, a software developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better developers. My name's Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to the show. All right. So I am extremely excited today because I'm actually going to be talking about a topic that hasn't gotten as much attention other than from this developer, but this developer for multiple reasons is also extremely popular and someone that the Android community has like loved for various reasons. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome uh, Joachim Borges. Did I get your name right? You did. Excellent job. Thanks for having me, Kushik. My pleasure, my pleasure. Welcome to the show. Now, a, a lot of folks already probably know you, but for the few that don't, can you maybe like just do a quick intro? How did you get into Android development? And I mean, even before you've gone to some of these star companies, you in yourself had like an app that you worked on that was also super popular. So can you just give us like maybe a quick sort of uh, history as to your Android career? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And actually, you know, I could probably speak for an hour on that story because it's quite a good one. Um, so let, let me know if I'm going too deep into detail, but how did I get into Android development? That, that story I really like because, um, you know, I was a student, I think it was in 2009, maybe. Yeah. 2009, I want to say. Um, and the iPhone was starting to get like popular. It was the iPhone 3GS at the time that like everybody was getting, like, you know, all the cool kids were getting and stuff. And I wanted one, right? And uh, I was a student. I just couldn't afford it. I just could not. And so I started looking at alternatives uh, to replace my old flip phone. And uh, I had a Samsung flip phone at the time. And so I was looking at what other Samsungs were there. And they had this uh, new Android lineup. Uh, it was the Samsung i7500. I still remember it. Um, and... Great little device, you know, with the physical keys, a small like three inch screen and stuff. But um, I quickly realized like it was good, but it was like a, a little sluggish or a little slow. And so I started Googling like, is there something I can do with this? And then I got introduced in the world of uh, ROMs and modding and like oh, the XDA forum uh, at the time was like really thriving. It was the early like Cyanogen mode days and all that. And I uh, started tinkering with it really hard. Um, and that was, I think, what hooked me. Uh, I was like, wow, there's actually so much you can do with this. Like, it's infinite possibilities. And um, I wanted to kind of be part of that community a little bit, but I wasn't a kernel developer or anything like that. So um, with my kind of software education... I started like tinkering with little apps and I made like little fun apps. And I think I started with uh, a few toy apps. And then my first app that I actually published, it was like a uh, news uh, RSS reader. And uh, yeah, and uh, I, the, the, I did it and I put it on the XDA forum as like, hey, here's, here's, here's my app, like, please use it. And it kind of like blew up really quickly from there. Um, and then once I had like one, one kind of successful app, um, that actually got me a professional job on, or as an entry developer back in France. And so, you know, I kept going, I made another app, which 
this time was a Twitter client called uh, Falcon. Um, and in kind of evolved into Falcon Pro. And that actually blew up way more uh, than anything else I've done before. And that actually landed me a job in, in Silicon Valley. Um, that's how I got kind of hunted uh, from France. And yeah, now I live in the US and I worked for these big companies and tried to stay as engaged with the Android community as possible. And uh, kind of that's where I am today. In the early days of Android, I always wanted a Twitter client and the Twitter app was okay, but especially the early days, it wasn't, you know, up to snuff. And I remember Falcon being one of those sort of uh, clients that I was really interested in. And obviously, that's how I started to follow you. Uh, you know, uh, the Twitter client just blew up. I don't know about the RSS reader. That's interesting. But I do remember when you decided to like shutter it or like when you were moving, uh, you know, to a different company, like the entire Android community was it was like bittersweet news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the good news is that um, I worked for Twitter for a while and I tried to like, you know, spread a bit of the, uh, some of the ideas that Falcon had and, you know, uh, the, like, uh, everybody who uses night mode on the official Twitter app right now, uh, that was me. <laughs> if, if it wasn't for me, I, I don't know if they're like, I'm sure they would have cut up eventually, but, uh, it took them a while to realize the, the value of having a bit of a, personalization there and um and yeah it 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 was a hard um project to convince everybody to do that because it was a lot of work but uh it it definitely proved successful uh and that was my little touch there uh another thing is like the on the entry twitter app the one of the first thing i did is the animation of images opening like that was the thing like i came in i was like "How, how do you guys not have that come on your Twitter. And, um, so hopefully, you know, I, I put my hand there a little bit and, uh, nowadays, honestly, the, the official Twitter app is pretty good. I would say I'm going to say, yeah. That's the recent trend I've noticed too. Probably in the last few years, I've just started to use the native Twitter app. It's pretty good. I know like people love to hate on Twitter, especially on the clients, but at this point I've, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm finding fewer reasons to. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I still think sometimes like, oh, I could like, you know, rebuild a brand new Twitter client and do it all fancy with a uh, Jetpack Compose and fancy UI and like all this uh, personalization. But uh, yeah, because of, you know, business reasons also, like Twitter doesn't love that aspect of having like competitors and uh, that uh, that actually kind of limits a lot the the space. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'm not going to do it. That makes sense. That makes sense. So recently, uh, you also like blog now and then, and one of your blog posts recently blew up. And it's one of those things where usually you tend to have a sense of the different technologies going around. But this is one of those times where I'd only heard about this and I had no clue if it was even real or it worked. And then I saw your blog post where you actually were demonstrating this thing. So I was mind blown. And this is about a projector is what the project is called. Can you tell us just a little about like, yeah, what the deal is with that? I'll also make sure to link the blog post in there, which is a fantastic blog post where you walk through it. But 
just for our listeners, can you talk about what uh, JetBrains Projector is? And maybe also like, uh, you know, go into why you even bothered to look into this, right? Like what even led you down that path? Was it like a cool story you had heard or was it actually some need that you had? Uh, we'd love to hear all of that. So that's also a good story, which is <clears throat> as uh, entry developers these days, I think everybody can relate to the fact that, um, you know, running Android Studio um, with an emulator or even, you know, with a Chrome tab open to like look at stuff, um, it just honestly blows up any computer. Um, so there is a scaling thing that happens as your project grows, your um, IDE will kind of use more and more resources to maintain this whole graph of symbols and classes and everything so you can quickly you know, jump through and all the indexes um, and um, to allow for like quicker, quicker compilation. It keeps a lot of things in memories. I have a tweet out there that shows like, um, this is on my current uh, job at Twitch, uh, which is not even like a massive app. Like Twitter was bigger um, and just like not doing anything, just after running um one build and having it like deployed to a computer to a emulator or a device i looked up my ram consumption and he was using like something like 13 gigs of ram um some of it was from the gradle daemon some of it was from the kotlin daemon and then some of it from android studio itself and like it was five gigs each for the daemons and then two or three gigs for Android Studio. My computer only has 16 gigs of RAM. That doesn't leave any room for anything else. And so um, not only that, but uh, on Macs, it's a little better because they have uh, fans that, you know, actually don't do too much noise and stuff, but you can still hear it and it like uh, heats up the sides of the trackpad really by a lot. Um, and on my personal uh, computer, which is a PC, I have a PC laptop. Um, the fans are super loud and I would literally just open Android Studio and just while it starts indexing, um, my uh, wife would complain, be like, what's this? What's this noise? And I'm like, sorry, I'm just like launching the... Launching my ID and um, my battery life on that PC would would just melt in like one hour. Um, so don't get me wrong, it works. Like you can do engine development on a laptop, like 16 gigs of RAM, fine. But as soon as your project like starts getting into the, you know, medium size, I would say like 10 modules, 20 modules, you're, you're going to start feeling the pain. On the go, I have a MacBook Pro 13 that I also use. And that thing, you know, when they say it's a laptop, if that thing gets hot, you know, to the point where I'm like, oh, I, I need to, like, you know, keep it on, you know, a, a, a desk or like a table or something. That's how hot it gets. And to your point, like, even if you have just a few modules, it's crazy. Like, uh, I've worked on apps which aren't necessarily as complex. Of course, currently, like, you know, the Instacart apps are pretty, like, big. 
So that almost it's like taken for granted. I've also put a tweet uh, very similarly to what you were saying. And the biggest thing that kills me every time is when the indexing happens and, you know, the 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 amount of time it takes for like your file to basically get the syntax highlighting and the autocomplete to work, there's pain there. And yeah, so um, I kind of was starting to look at alternatives or like at least a way to have a little bit more quality of life there. And so, you know, there, there's a few solutions. One is to have like the beefiest computer you can, right? Maybe I only do development on my gaming PC now or like a desktop, like a big Mac Pro or something. And sure, then you don't have, you know, the, your burning legs problem, but you sacrifice uh, mobility. And I love like uh, working from the couch. Sometimes I take it on the table outside. Um, I take it to a cafe when I used to be able to. Um, and I, I started thinking, well, uh, if I can't, uh, if I still want to use this lightweight uh, laptop, um, what are the solutions here? And obviously the solution is to offload the heavy lifting, the heavy processing, uh, somewhere else. And so I started looking to solutions there and actually found this, uh, Gradle plugin at first called, uh, Miracle, uh, with a K and, um, it's a Gradle plugin that you set up. And basically what it does is once you have it set up, it's, as soon as you hit build or any Gradle task, instead of running the Gradle daemon and all the compilation on your laptop, it um, pushes a command to a remote server that will do the heavy lifting for you and then uh, copy back the, the files and the results back to your computer. And so it's it doing that under the hood for you, which was I thought pretty smart. Um, and but obviously it does require you to have another machine somewhere that will do the heavy lifting. So that can be your gaming PC at home uh, or a server in the cloud. That's pretty slick. So you're saying it would Gradle compile, keep all the DEX files probably all all of that ready, and then just file transfer those files back to you. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it does it pretty well. Like, uh, I think um, the project is like, no, it didn't look super well maintained, but it it worked. Like I, I, I had it running and it was uh, not bad. But um, so it does require to have that server, right? And so for that, I decided to go with like um, AWS, like a instance in the cloud, uh, which also opened me to the world of... Uh, you know, cloud servers, which uh, nowadays are such a commodity. Like you can get that set up in like a few clicks. It's pretty amazing. Um, and the free tiers were enough for me to start playing with things. Um, so I got that set up and it was working okay. Um, but it still requires you to run Android Studio locally, obviously. It only offloads the Gradle part. So um, indexing and maintaining all these, uh, you know, classes and reference in memory, uh, all that still happens. Right. And so it was better, but not the final solution. And the final solution, 
Actually, a friend of mine uh, that you might know from the Android community as well called Ty Smith um, enlightened me on this even better solution. Is like, have you heard of JetBrains Projector? And I was like, I have not. Tell me more. And so the idea here is that instead of just running Gradle in the cloud, you run the whole Android Studio in the cloud and you access it via a browser. And so that, you know, there's been like uh, IDs in the browser before and I've kind of like looked at them a little bit like Visual Studios one with GitHub and stuff. But, you know, for Android development, like you're doing native development, you need like ADB and all that stuff. And I didn't believe it at first. Um, but, you know, Ty is a pretty, pretty reputable guy when he says uh, something like that. Uh, I usually follow through. And so I, I did my research and um, I found their GitHub. Uh, so this is uh, a project by JetBrains. So these guys, you know, they know what they're doing uh, and they're pretty reputable. So that really piqued my interest. And so on their GitHub, you can find the instructions on how to set that up on um, the remote server. So like most of it is done on, a, on that remote server. So the process is... You know, you start that like free AWS machine out there, you connect via SSH and now you have like a terminal to that thing in the cloud. You install projector, you install, uh, you download Android Studio there or IntelliJ. It actually works with any of the JetBrains IDEs, which is um, kind of amazing. I'll get to how it does that in a bit. Um, you set it up, you run it and it gives you a URL like something like your IP um, with like a port. And on your little lightweight laptop, you open a browser, you put that URL, and boom, you have like Android Studio in your browser, in Chrome or Firefox or anything like that. And it's very crisp. Like the, it's not like a remote desktop solution where, you know, as you're, internet goes down the pixel like everything will look pixelated and you know uh, maybe you'll have like input lag and stuff um it's not built as a remote desktop solution it's um built with a lot of assumptions under the hood because it's made by JetBrains, and the idea is also made by JetBrains, so they know how to take shortcuts there and those shortcuts is what allows to have um Pixel perfect fonts, uh, no matter your connection. Um, really low uh, latency input. So typing and kind of scrolling and everything is super responsive on a normal connection. Um, and I was kind of blown away. I was like, this, this is what I needed. Um, my laptop suddenly is completely silent. It's actually too cold. Uh, because all it does is is just have a browser open, um, which you know that doesn't consume that much. Especially with those newer Mac machines we have now, right? Like the M ones and stuff. Their browser performance is supposed to be pretty good. Absolutely, and and so having confidence in that setup, uh, I actually set it up first on. I wanted to like push the concept a little bit, see how, how what it would allow me to. Uh, do in terms of hardware and uh, I have a Chromebook um, that is probably like 
you know, the lowest end laptop I own. But uh, I love it because it's super lightweight and it had pretty good, pretty good battery life. And so I was like, will it work on a Chromebook? And um, I opened up the browser there, Chrome, and put the URL and it worked. And I could do all my Android development from a Chromebook. And I did that for a few months and I absolutely loved it. Um, it was so liberating, like, you know, I can one hand holds the laptop in one hand and then type like <laughs> while I'm walking and stuff. It was crazy. As you're making your omelet on the other side, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I even had it working on, uh, you know, iPad because why not? You can, because it's just wow. the browser. Um, obviously on the iPad, things get a little weird because you don't have a trackpad and, I mean, the keyboard, you can use like the case and stuff, but um, the touch like uh, controls, like to scroll and stuff, that worked fine. Um, I even had it running on my phone to see what what it would look like. And just for, you know, because I was kind of like hyped about it. Um, But at the end of the day, um, my current setup now for, and this is for my personal development right now, is uh, I... Because I knew now that I can do this, I didn't mind what laptop I would get. Uh, I decided to jump the gun and get a MacBook Air M1 uh, for Christmas. Um, I, MacBook Air is my absolute favorite laptops of all time. I used to own one um, back in the day and I absolutely loved it. The form factor is perfect. Size is perfect. It's light. Um and with the M1, honestly, the battery life is just amazing. Like I charge it every two or three days. Um, and um, because it's M1, uh, if you're an Android developer right now and you're looking at M1, you know, you have to know that a bunch of stuff is not going to work as you expect or maybe slower um, because, you know, the ID like uh, Android Studio is not M1 ready yet. Uh, you would have to run it through their Rosetta layer, which honestly you can you can feel that it's not uh, as fast as all the other programs that are optimized there, and so you feel like you're missing out a bit, or like it defeats the purpose. Do you know if JetBrains released that? Because it was in beta, I thought, right? Like they have like a beta sort of thing where the JVM runs, and it's supposed to be somewhat okay. Yeah. So there is a. Um, issue open uh, on the JetBrains like bug tracker uh, for that and it has like <laughs> 250 comments or something like that so there is a lot of uh, interest I actually subscribe to that and I get spammed email spam so often but I, I want to know when, when they're actually going to release something and there are versions you can use right now but uh, every day I see people reporting bugs and stuff so you know it's not you can try it. It's just not super production ready yet. I wanted to follow up on some of the stuff that you mentioned because it almost seems like a dream. It doesn't seem real. Uh, your initial apprehensions, right, were like ADB, connecting a device. How does all that work? Like, because say, I mean, do you run an emulator again also on the machine or do you connect it to a local device and have it again send the AAB or the APK? How does the mechanics work there? Because one difference when you're a mobile developer is you need to actually see it on a mobile to like, you know, reproduce and we can't use a browser there. So how does that work? Yeah. And so I, uh, you know, again, didn't believe it at first and turns out, so 
the way it works is um, so the IDE part you access via a browser, right? So that's just like um, inputs from your mouse and your keyboard, and that gets translated to commands to the IDE, and the IDE kind of sends back like this harsh draw back to the browser, right? But then for things like ADB or uh, even like, well, let, let's talk about ADB. So for ADB, all you need, so there's two ways you could do it, right? Either you have like some sort of emulator running on your remote machine. So, and again, that remote machine can be a beefy PC or Linux box at home, right? Um, as long as you can access it through a network. Um, so you could run an emulator there and just have it, uh, the, so now the Android Studio and the emulator kind of live in the same machine. So that's, that works. But what you really want is like to be able to deploy to a device that you have locally, not in the cloud. Um, and so for that, it is actually a really simple way because ADB, um, is just like kind of a connection to a port that you define and um, with SSH, which is what you use to actually connect to the remote machine, um, you can set up a tunnel uh, that tunnels everything that goes through a specified port uh, remotely to the same port locally, as if the two ports were actually the same or connected. And so that's just one line in the terminal to set that up. Or if you look up my... Uh, setup instructions on my GitHub, I show you how to set that up like automatically so that you have it um, kind of by default when you start your whole um, environment and you start projector. And so with that, as soon as you connect the device locally, mm -hmm. ADB locally detects it and forwards it up to the same port on the server and so it immediately appears on the Android Studio like uh, device connected and you press play and what it does is got to build on the remote machine, generate the APK, push it via the remote ADB, which tunnels through your local ADB. So basically they like downloads the APK uh, basically and then pushes to your device locally and it just works. That is crazy. I mean, it makes sense. Theoretically, what you're saying absolutely makes sense because, you know, that's how like you know, networking and like port forwarding works. But for some reason, it just seems like a dream, right? Where you're like, I mean, for all practical purposes, it sounds like you're connecting your device to that remote machine directly, right? Absolutely. It's honestly, it was mind blowing to me. Um, and uh, you can even push this even further and, you know, nowadays with the um, the latest Android versions, you can do uh, Wi-Fi ADB really easily. Um, and so that's my setup right now is I have like this little script that starts, you know, my remote machine, starts projectoring it with the port forwarding. And then I have, uh, I just kind of set up my uh, Wi-Fi ADB for my device to my local computer and boom, it appears in my browser's IDE. And so I press play and the APK literally travels from realm to cloud to local to wi local Wi-Fi. It's insane. Um, but I've been using this for months now and uh, 
I couldn't be happier, honestly. It's uh, really changed my my quality of life of injury development. That's crazy. I I mean, I again, I have like so many follow up questions, so I'm gonna like just keep throwing them at you, but I don't even know where to start. Um, how does debugging work? Does debugging also work? Like, you know, because that's an important part of like how people do mobile development, right? You put a debug point there and then you run it. Does all of that just work? So it works. Like I have uh, debug like step-by-step with it. Uh, Same way. So basically it's, you know, ADB uh, forwarding there. But um, I, I have had... People tell me that sometimes the debugger like just kind of drops and stuff. Um, so it does happen. Uh, like it's not perfect, perfect for step-by-step debugging. But honestly, I've had similar issues with local step-by-step debugging. So I don't know where the problem exactly is, um, but definitely adding another layer to the already fragile debugging process is probably not the best but um i mean you get log cap perfectly fine that's still there and like not a problem uh, at all and uh i don't know for um like quick iteration and stuff if your app you know if your app is not a giant thing um you're now building on a machine that you can scale up infinitely so you can have a machine with like 64 gigs of ram and eight cores and everything you want, um, which actually the the speed of like redeploying there, you know, you do a change, you test it, you do a change, you test it, uh, is actually improved drastically if you scale the your machine up. Um, so that was my question. Do you actually see a difference? Is it something that actually scales? Uh, you know, if I keep throwing more, you know, re- cpu or like resources at it are you do you see a material difference so it it, for large projects yes uh because you can now set up uh your daemon your graduate daemon to have you know 16 workers instead of eight or something like that and so uh all your modules now are compiling in parallel like uh twice as many in parallel um but um Ty Smith, which is the person who recommended me to look into this, is actually um, investigating this for Uber um, because at Uber, they have a giant app and they've had a lot of issues with Gradle and they can't use Android Studio because the indexing just like takes forever. And so um, he told me that the the experiment they have running uh, right now is having Projector on like one of these... 96 core and 512 gigabytes of RAM or more or something like that. Um, and, you know, that significantly improves the developer productivity. Uh, so they're seriously considering it. Um, but yeah, Projector is still kind of early on. And honestly, um, this is also why I want people to hear about it because the more attention this project will get, uh, the more JetBrains will put resources into it. Right now, I feel like it's one or maybe two people kind of pushing for it as a more of a passion project type thing. Um, and kind of their execs are probably waiting to see the demand there. Um, but uh, in my opinion, like there's so many advantages to run your 
kind of whole development environment in the cloud. Uh, think about this. I have right now on my uh, remote server, I have my perfect like Git setup. I have all my like terminal uh, preferences and stuff set up there. I have my Android Studio with all my projects, etc. That means that tomorrow uh, my laptop dies or something, or I want to change laptops, or I want to, you know, code from a friend's house or something like that. All I need to do is open a browser, and <laughs> everything is there. It's funny. I I don't know if you've seen those Chromebook ads. You know how they're like, oh, no problem. Your machine goes into like you know a shredder, or <laughs> you know it falls. Your photos and all your data is just you can pick up another Chromebook and go. So it almost seems like that promise. You know, that's something that developers obviously never could fathom, but it sounds like, hey, we're starting to get there with this project. Yeah. I wanted to touch base again, though, because I I looked at it initially and I was it, like you said, it almost seems like a skunk work project, right? Like I've the documentation obviously is not as flushed out because jet trains as like, you know, they they do a really fine job, right? Like they are solid about like releasing projects and stuff. So that's why it's interesting because after you said like okay this seems to be like something that is still like very early on that's it makes sense because like the documentation is not there so i don't want to let listeners know that you know we don't expect it to be like a fully flushed sort of project yet but it's nice to know that people like you and ty have you know experimented it uh, experimented with it especially you know because it seems to be like a pain point specifically for android developers and one advantage we have, you know, in the community is there's a lot of us, right? You know, there's a lot of Android developers. Uh, I mean, there's so many technologies that we can point to, like, you know, RxJava, Kotlin, which for all practical purposes took off just because the Android community specifically were interested, right? And it's starting to sound like this is a trend now where everyone's complaining about Android Studio, not because like the... I mean, it's a beautiful tool and, like, you know, we have it so much better compared to like most other folks, you know, in the mobile side. But even so, you know, it can be better, like you said. And this thing that it that you're talking about, like, you know, with projector, it sounds almost like a dream, right? It doesn't sound, it sounds like one of those things that, I don't know if in the early days, if you remember, like Sun, the company used to talk about having like, uh, what was it? Nexus machines or something, I forget, you know, where they used to have terminals and they're like, everything's a terminal, run everything on our Sun servers and you just have like a window into uh, yeah, the ginormous service. So it seems like that age is coming back again. Yeah, I remember the Sun project is like you had like some sort of card that you put in the terminal and that suddenly you're logged in with all your preferences and stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love that uh, that liberation of like not having to reset up like you know redownload entry studio redownload of my all my images um and build tools and stuff and then reset up my git terminal on every single computer instead it's like somewhere out there in the cloud and i can just access it i really like that idea um and it, you can you can see how for companies like that would be a huge productivity gain like you could you know onboard someone in minutes uh instead of having them like spend a whole day setting up the environment, right? 100%, 100%. I wanted to like follow up again on some things because I do think it's very interesting. I, you know, that connection after I looked at the documentation and I talked to you offline is when that connection in my head, uh, you know, it it sort of clicked. Uh, JetBrains projector, 
the way this works, I want to talk about the mechanism, right? And again, I suspect this is how it works, but you, you probably have spent more time to understand. The reason they're even able to do this, like you said, they build the IDE. And so they understand like, you know, the the things that you can do to save and make that experience more pleasant as an IDE. But how does it work? Uh, it says it's like a swing UI like framework, right? Can you talk a little towards like how that mechanism works? Yeah. So um, to put it simply, really, what they built, and I think that's why it's like so brilliant is because it's a very simple idea. Um, so as you said, the IDEs are built on top of Swing, which is a UI framework for desktop. Um, and all their IDEs are basically built on top of that. So like PyCharm, IntelliJ, Android Studio, etc. And um, if you think about it, when you run Android Studio on like a VM in the cloud, that that thing doesn't have a display, right? So you, what does it mean to run it there? Like, uh, like Swing doesn't have anything, any display to send its commands to. But uh, what they did is, or when you run Projector, it actually runs this thing called Projector Server, uh, which is something that kind of hooks into the... Uh, IDE and receives this swings uh, draw commands that the IDE sends. So it kind of sets itself up as the display, right? And so now you have this kind of hook into, okay, I can receive all the drawing commands that the IDE sends. Well, what, what can I do with them? Well, from there, you can translate it to any format you want. And so one of the applications, and that's only one of them, is to have a client. So this is the projector client that receives those uh, transformed drawing commands from the projector server and interprets them as um, web uh, drawing commands, basically. So, uh, so basically it goes from like swing commands to draw things like, you know, text and all that to projector server, which kind of uh, hooks into that and then kind of dispatches it to uh, all the clients that are interested. And then one of the clients happens to be like this web server, which um, takes in this command. So like draw text or something and literally read, like transform it into now uh, render it to a web page in from a JavaScript uh, kind of transformer there and that's how we can render these like pixel perfect fonts because it's not actually like um you know doing that remote like it's not a pixel to pixel translation instead it's like a drawing command to drawing command translation it's almost like how vector images work right like the reason svg vectors are like so high fidelity is not because the pixel is being sent through the wire it's more like the instructions are being sent and so each client understands how to draw right yep so it's all about uh, that protocol of instructions that they control so on the one hand it's uh very nice because they as you said like everything can be kind of vectorized and then uh so they have the instructions how to do anything how to draw a window how to draw text how to scroll and stuff um but on the other hand that means that obviously it only works for programs that are built with Swing. Right, right. And I mean, the other connection that I kind of realized before was 
Kotlin was a language that was built by JetBrains, right? Like they came up with it because they found Java to be too verbose or whatever. Like I forget the story, but that's the connection that I made. And I was like, oh, because Swing is a Java GUI tool, right? So it's like a graphical user interface tool uh, written in Java. And in the early days, you could write UI interfaces in Swing and you would use Java for that. And that's where like, I was like, oh, so that's why people keep saying, oh, JetBrains is built on Kotlin. It's built on like Java. And I'm like, uh, okay, <laughs> you know, but I don't have that connection. Now it makes perfect sense because, okay, so JetBrains for all practical purposes is like a swing UI, right? Uh, and that's being, again, obviously I'm simplifying this to a large extent because they have native apps and I'm sure there's something else going on there. But it starts to make sense where they're like, okay, there's the Swing UI projector server that relays instructions to the client, and that client now is a browser instead of, you know, a native. Exactly. Tool. Yep. Mm. And uh, honestly, the architecture is pretty pretty flexible. Like you can imagine, like other types of clients, like an actual other lightweight desktop app or something like that, uh, or like a mobile app or whatever, right? And all these like drawing instructions, you can basically tweak them and transform into exactly what you want. Um, and then on the other side, on the input side, uh, it, it's just the other way around. So now the, the browser receives like clicks and scrolls and type events related. So the client receives those and then can transmit those back to the uh, server, which has that, that other role, which is to input back uh, commands to the IDE. So that projector server basically is the driver, uh, but also kind of the receiver of all the draw commands. And that's how they, they're able to run the IDE on a completely headless, you know, server out there, uh, but still make really uh, good use of it. Have you noticed things like network latency mattering? Like, you know, if you're on a good network versus like, you know, a flaky network, it just, it seems so boggling to me because when you're typing, people tend to type pretty fast, right? Uh, well, at least, you know, people can type pretty fast. So do you find any sort of like differences there? What makes the setup even better? So definitely you want like a stable connection and speed actually doesn't like, decent speed is uh, more than enough because all these instructions are basically just instructions. So they're very lightweight uh, through the network. Like you can imagine like just sending a kind of click command that's kinda just a few bytes that has to go through. Uh, and receiving is also only a few like drawing instructions, like say imagine like some vector formats, things that go through. So it's lightweight. It's not like you're receiving like huge bitmaps and stuff that you have to learn all the time. But if you do have an actual like blip, like a really like no connectivity for a few seconds, what will happen is um, if it's like just a short burst, maybe you'll have a delay in like a scroll, for example. Um, that's the most noticeable one for me is the scrolling. Like, you know, it will kind of like scroll slowly and then kind of catch up uh, as the as the network catches up. And then um, actually typing, I've never had like this like typing lag uh, thing. I wonder if what they do, they have like a delay between what they actually uh, show on screen and what they send, you know, uh, to kind of appear like it's responsive. Um, but the scrolling definitely I've noticed like if I my connectivity drops, like, yeah, you, you'll get these slows, downs and speed ups. Um, but 
honestly, I mean, I'm telling you, I've been using this for months and uh, I've had no complaints. I do want to like get, uh, get into like some of the other potential disadvantages before like you know we get into the like interesting bits which is like i feel like i want to try this right now so i want to ask you about those instructions but before we get to that um, the only disadvantage i think in some ways i would think other than the documentation but you've done a good job of compensating there with like your blog post uh, is cost i imagine right because these are aws servers and i at least know like you know my company pays a lot of money for aws uh what kind of costs like you know can you give a ballpark as to like what you would think uh, like how much this would cost because am i talking thousands of dollars am i talking like you know uh tens of dollars like what kind of like costs have you seen in your usage so definitely like AWS is is not cheap um especially if you want to go you know fancy and have like a beefy machine um but i I will say like there there are multiple ways to like uh, avoid the AWS costs. Uh, one of them is just to have a machine at home that you use as the server. Um, and so, for example, if you have a gaming PC or something like that, um, that has like a lot of RAM and uh, can, you know, afford to get hot, basically, you don't mind. Uh, and you can access it through your local network. Um, that can be your remote server and you're you're good there. Um, oh, so you, I can pick any machine and set it up? Like I can pick any machine I want and then just set up Projector to work on it? Any machine. It can be your Mac Pro at home uh, and you can open it up just for your um, kind of Mac address or something like that. So you can access it from remote. Uh, it can be like I have a gaming PC that would be a really good candidate uh, for it. So uh, anything that runs, I mean... You don't need Linux or like a Mac is fine. Uh, I think I can run it on Windows with the WSL. Right, right, right. That's their Linux port or something that they did yeah. more recently, right? Yeah. And um, and yeah, but um, for me, so for let's talk about the cost of AWS because it is so convenient, so 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 convenient uh, to have it out there. You can scale it up. Uh, you can you have like you know all your security rules really easy to set up like you can only allow a few IPs uh, to access it um, it's basically always available from anywhere in the world um, and in terms of cost so I think on my blog post I have a little ballpark uh, I think I said if you use it like eight hours a day five days a week it would come down to about uh what's it 50 bucks a month or something like that um i have to look at my my estimates again actually um i'll have to look it up again because i haven't looked at my aws uh <laughs> billing in a while uh the one thing i will say is that the trick is to not let the machine run while you're not using it uh, because you pay per per minute of usage, and so uh, you want to shut it down when you're not using it. So that's that's the key. And I think if you do that, uh, then the cost is very it's pretty reasonable. Um, and but obviously, as you go up in quality of the machine and RAM and all that, the prices ramp up significantly. 
And just for the listeners, uh, I mean, from your blog post straight, and let me know if something has changed here. Uh, you said you're using an EC2 instance with eight cores, 32 gigs of RAM, and 100 gigs of storage, uh, 40 cents per hour. And so typically, if you for your personal projects, you said even if you do it about eight hours a day, five days a week, that's ballparking $60, 64 dollars. Sixty four. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So that yeah. is especially if your quality of life. I mean, again, we want to like you know we have uh, folks from like who come from very different like backgrounds and like don't necessarily have like the resources or even access sometimes to like uh, things like AWS. So we are definitely mindful of that. But at the same time. $60. If someone said, I will, you pay me $60 every month and I'll make your Android Studio experience, I'll say, here's $100, make it even better. <laughs> yeah. You know, because that's how painful it can get. Yeah. Absolutely. You have to consider also like you could uh, like do all your Android development with like a cheap Chromebook that costs you maybe $500. Oh, that's fair too. So the upfront cost in like, yeah, investing in a expensive machine is also something to account for because yeah like um if you take that into account well maybe like after years you know you kind of make up for uh, a beefy laptop instead but um again like that's up to you know the the individual or what the what they think is good for them i would suggest uh you know the great thing about the edulis that you can like uh, start small you can even start with a free tier Although the free tier, I think, is one gig of RAM. It might be okay for, like, you know, testing. Make sure that, you know, it works. You can access Android Studio and stuff. But as soon as you got a real project in there, you're going to want a little more of RAM there. And so you're going to start paying, basically. But if you uh, scale it up as your project scales up, you can save money there. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, um, if... Uh, you would rather invest in like a, the most expensive laptop uh, with everything you need to kind of run normally, but still accept that, you know, it will get hot, it will uh, suck your battery, but you have everything locally. Uh, that's absolutely fine too. This is, uh, Android is all about possibilities and why you can, uh, everybody has uh, things they prefer and they, their own personalization, right? Uh, for me, that's uh, that's a, a price i'm willing to pay for the convenience of development on a macbook air uh, which uh, has a battery life of three days and i can carry with one hand <laughs> it's a good way to put it uh i know we're getting towards the end of uh, the show and i don't want to hold you on for too long because i know you got to get back to your things too but uh one last thing is so folks want to like try this out you know they're like okay uh Joaquim, i'm i'm you sold me I need to get started with this. Where should we start? What is a good place to like even start looking at this? Where did you start? And can you give us some tips on how, you know, we can short circuit that process so we're up and running more quickly? So uh, at the end of my blog post, there's actually a link to a GitHub. So it's on my GitHub. It's just one readme with a bunch of instructions on how to set everything up the way I have it at least. Um, and... It's I handheld you like it's a step by step. Um, you kind of like just copy paste things, um, create obviously a AWS account, or maybe you have some credits from Google Cloud, you know, and you want to use Google Cloud that also works perfectly fine. Um, and or you or you want to set it up on your 
um, old machine or desktop machine or something. So you have you can adapt it that way. But otherwise, yeah, all the instructions are on my GitHub. Um, we can uh, link it at, at the in the related links of this podcast, and you can start there. Absolutely, Joaquim, this is amazing. You've given me a lot of homework now because I'm starting to think about this too. And you know, uh, there's plenty of like we'll try to link to all the documentation that's available. It's a little sparse, but I again, like you said, I think your blog post talks about it really well. If folks really have their interest peaked, I'd like definitely look at your blog post and I'll make sure to like also add instructions as well. Sounds good. And hopefully, you know, with uh, people kind of trying it out and, um, you know, maybe tweeting at JetBrains or uh, posting on their, they have like, um, you know, a bug tracker website for projector, um, you know, post things there, even saying like uh, things are good, things that are bad. And uh, as soon as JetBrain sees that there's a little bit of interest in there, they will, uh, you know, take this to the next level. And uh, I honestly think there's something really uh, like a sleeping beast there there that could just change everything, huh? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, for personal development, but also for companies, um, there are so many advantages there. Um, Definitely take a look. That's awesome. Uh, how about this? We should all probably tweet at Jet. Well, uh, I, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I, mean, I just realized that may not be the best idea, but uh, at least we should go start their project. That's a good start. And maybe we can yeah. like, you know, tell them how much we love this after trying it out or, you know, yeah, if there's interest. Absolutely. Uh, one last thing I will say is, uh, you know, in my, at first, I think what stopped people uh, a lot is like setting up the remote server because for a lot of, especially our us Android devs, like that's not, kind of a bit out of our comfort zone. Um, get, like get past it. You will learn things. Uh, you will realize how useful it is for other projects of yours as well to have a machine that you can just spin up at will. Um, and then at the very end of the, uh, the GitHub um, instructions in the readme, I have my own personal little script that I made which is what I use it uh, every day these days. I kind of run it. It's called work, like, you know, work.ash. I run that and that streamlines everything for me. It starts my instance. It starts the SSH tunnel for my ADB. It starts projector and it even opens Chrome for me uh, in the right thing and without all the tabs and stuff as a, like, as if it was an app, you know? So it looks like I'm really in the normal ID. And then um, also make sure that when I quit Chrome, it shuts down my instance so I don't overpay. So highly recommend looking into into that little script and making your own. Joaquim, thank you so much for this. This is awesome. You've given a lot of food for thought. If folks wanted to reach out to you, what's a good place to do that in case they're running into something that, you know, they have like some doubts on, uh, is there some place we can reach out to you? Yeah. The best place honestly is Twitter. Uh, I'm the most active there. Uh, the handle is Joe N R V. So J O E N R V. Um, so, you know, tweet at me, any questions you have, I'll do my best to answer them. Absolutely. And I'll definitely make sure to throw that in the show notes as well. Thanks a lot for chatting with us, man. Awesome. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you folks for listening and we will catch you 
the next episode. That's it for the show, folks. Fragmented is hosted by Don Felker and me, Kaushik Gopal. We edit and produce all the episodes here on Fragmented. You can find more Fragmented episodes at fragmentedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode.